Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 9th, 2023. Uh, we've done some shows recently reminding us that the world is a very physical place. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had Siddharth Kara on the show, uh, uh, who has a new book, Cobalt Red. It's already a New York Times bestseller, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Uh, I described the show as the new heart of darkness on how our thirst for rechargeable batteries um, is uh, turning the Congo into a kind of slave economy. And then tomorrow I have a show with Ed Conway, another shortlisted book for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year. He has a new book out, Material World, a book about um, our uh, reliance on materiality. Uh, he believes that there are six commodities that shape our lives that remind us for all the promise of digital, uh, digital revolution we're actually more and more reliant on physical things. And that, I think, is the other message in um, Cobalt Red, Siddharth Kara's book. And I'm really thrilled that uh, today we're also talking uh, physical stuff with one of America's leading environmental act academics, uh, Stephen Porter. He teaches at Brown University. And he has a new book out called Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's past and will shape our future. And he's joining us from Brown University in Rhode Island. Stephen, welcome and congratulations on the new book, Elemental. I'm not sure if you're familiar with either Kara's uh, book, uh, Cobalt Red, or Ed Conway's book, uh, Material World, are you? I haven't read Material World. I am uh, familiar with um, the Congo and lith lithium extraction and so forth, uh, cobalt extraction, I'm sorry, and, uh, so, so forth. Um, but I haven't actually read that one either. So there, I, can, I have two new things on my list just from starting the show with you. Good. Well, uh, important reading list. And of course, your book is essential. You don't need to read that. You've already written it. Elemental, how five elements changed us past and will shape our future. Tell us a little bit about the book and, and why you think it's so important for us to understand these five elements, Stephen. Yeah, well, as you said, we live in a very material world, uh, even if we think it's more and more digital. And so this book is really about three things. It's about the rare organisms uh, that over the course of the history of life on Earth have evolved to really change the world in a profound way. And each one of them is an interesting story. But I think even more interesting than their individual stories is this thread of five elements that connects them. And what I mean by that is when organisms evolve new ways of capturing these elements from the environment, they can really emerge uh, and change the world. And so by looking at the thread that connects these three organisms, and I'll, you know, spoiler alert, humans are the third, and arguably only the third in, in four billion years of life, uh, of the history of life. By looking uh, at this thread that connects us all, we can actually use that understanding to build a more sustainable future. And so the other two books you introduced, I think, are excellent links to this idea that if we are ever going to 
really emerge as a sustainable species and have a sustainable society, it needs to keep these, we need to keep these elements uh, front and center in our efforts. Yeah, this phrase, Stephen, um, to change the world, what exactly does it mean? And you said there are three things that have changed the world. The humans are the third. What are the first two? Yeah. So the first organism to really change the world was an organism called, or a group of organisms called cyanobacteria. These are single-celled, although they live colonially organisms, they're still very common on Earth today. Um, But they are the ones that uh, were able to turn our planet from an anoxic planet, a planet that had no free oxygen, no multicellular life, um, to to an oxygenated planet where things like humans, but also all other multicellular life can can emerge uh, can can exist, and they did this not just by uh, integrating a new way of capturing carbon, which is one of the elements that's in the book, but also nitrogen. So the argument here is that we're all built from the same stuff: you and I, and a tree, and a cyanobacterium, and any other living thing you can think of. We're all built mostly from these five elements: hydrogen, oxygen carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. If you live, and we all have to build our bodies by gathering those elements from, from the environment. If you live in the, in the ocean, as cyanobacteria did, um, water, H and O, are easy to get, but carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus are not. And so what, their evolutionary innovation was that they, they uh, combined a better way of getting carbon with a better way of getting nitrogen. And they proliferated wildly as a result of this. So more and more life burgeoning in the ocean because of their success. But the byproduct of that chemistry, that biochemistry that was allowing them to grow was oxygen. And there was no free oxygen, the oxygen that we breathe in the atmosphere or in the ocean at the time, or at least it was there in teeny, teeny, teeny amounts. But eventually they were so wildly successful, they pumped enough oxygen into the world to change the chemistry of the planet with dramatic effects for everything that came after them, including us. So when I talk about organisms that change the world, I really mean it in the sense of changing the chemistry of the ocean and the air in such a profound way that life is never the same afterwards. Um, And the cyanobacteria are still uh, the world record holders, if you will, for the biggest change that life has ever precipitated on our planet. I know you talk about uh, historic scientists like Joseph Priestley, who is a theologian scientist who as early as 1774 recognized how we were changing the world. But for the most part, we had no idea of of what we were doing. Is that fair, Stephen? I mean, we're beginning to understand it now through the work of guys like yourself. But for most of human history, we had no idea that we were actually changing the world. We didn't think the world was changing. It was just there. Well, it depends. For most of human history, I would, I would agree with you. But starting in the 1800s, really with the Industrial Revolution, uh, even with Priestley before that, um, we did start to understand our ability to, to change the world. And so... Uh, from Eunice Foote's early experiments. Uh, She showed in the 1850s that carbon dioxide could change the temperature of the planet. Uh, Svante Arrhenius uh, in 1898 published a model, a climate model, really the first climate model. And if you 
feed into that model the carbon dioxide concentrations that have occurred over the 20th and early 21st century, it almost perfectly predicts the temperature. <laughs> so we understood uh, as, as early as really the turn of the 20th century that if we, for example, burned enough fossil fuels, we could prevent another ice age from happening. That was written about at the time. Um, for the other elements that we've talked about, um, in some sense, uh, people didn't know that nitrogen and phosphorus were critical for life until, uh, you know, again, a similar time frame. But they did know that eventually if they grew crops on the same place and removed those crops and didn't put any fertilizer, any compost or uh, back, their fields would, would degrade. And so there was an understanding uh, that you needed to do something to enrich your soil if you were constantly removing uh, food. So even though they didn't call it nitrogen and phosphorus, you know, people have understood how to grow crops for a very long time. So yes and no, I guess. Let's go back to the book. Um, it's just out. It's a Princeton University Press book, Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. It's a book where you've done some traveling. It's not a hard scientific book. Uh, you take us to the Amazon, to Hawaii, to the cornfields of the American Midwest. Why did you feel that um, to make your argument, you needed to, to take your reader around the world, as they said, from the Amazon to the Midwest? Well, in part, it's because that's where I've worked and that's where I've learned these lessons over the course of my career. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing to me. Uh, you take physics and chemistry and biology, for example, in high school uh, and even in college, and you don't really ever learn, at least I didn't learn, in that time, what it meant to be on a living planet. I always thought that it meant that our planet had living things on it, and th that's true. Um, but it's also that our planet is shaped by life itself, and it's shaped by life itself because we gather elements from our environment and change the flow of those elements across the planet. And those elements in, 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 in um, the, uh, following on that, these elements control the climate and feedback to control how much life on Earth there is. So there's this rhythm, this, this chemical rhythm of the planet that is not uh, separate from us. We're part of that flow. And as we understand how to do things better, how we make fertilizer, burn fossil fuels, et cetera, we can actually change the chemical rhythms of the planet. So in order to see that, I wanted to take readers to the places where those constraints and those changes can best be understood. And so, um, for example, in the in the Amazon example, you know, for for many, many years, uh, people thought that the Amazon soils were too infertile to host agriculture. You know, these are the worst soils in the world, people would say. Of course, the forest, nobody told the forest that it grows just fine. So clearly it knew what uh, you know, it knew quote unquote, what it was doing, but we couldn't figure it out. And then what we came to understand is that phosphorus was a critical nutrient missing in most of those soils. And if you fertilize, for example, soybeans with a ton of phosphorus in the Amazon, they grow just as well as on the Right. I know that uh, Elizabeth Colbert uh, ah, yes. uh, just wrote a piece actually in February of yep. this year about phosphorus and its role in uh, yeah. saving and destroying our way of life. And I think you were <laughs> quoted in that piece. Yes. It was also my dissertation topic. <laughs> um, so the Amazon's instructive. What about Hawaii and the Midwest, Stephen? 
Yeah, so Hawaii is a really interesting example um, because it's a place where um, ecologists and other scientists in the natural world can sort of have a natural laboratory. You, for example, if you're interested in the effects of how old the soil is on how fertile it is, there are lava flows that are very similar chemically in very similar climates, but very dramatically in age. If you're interested in the effect of rainfall on soil fertility, just to continue with that example, you know, there are two lava flows coming on the big island. One is on the windward side that gets a lot of rain. One is on the leeward side, gets almost no rain or 10 times less, but they're exactly the same age lava flow and they go from the top of the mountain all the way down to the ocean. So you have this beautiful natural laboratory that allows us to see things that you can't see uh, in more complicated continental settings. What are the fires of uh, in Hawaii, the, the tragic fires of last month, which were in the headlines uh, yeah, many so, people read as uh, a, a mirror on how we're destroying the world what do those fires tell us well i haven't i haven't studied those fires specifically but hawaii is uh one of the places that has the most non-native species of pretty much anywhere relative to its native species population and some of those non-native species in hawaii are very flammable grasses that have spread really, really dramatically uh, over the last many decades. And those grasses uh, provide fodder for the kind of horrific fire that uh, that we saw on Maui. Um, so it's, I don't actually, those, those fires were a horrible, horrible thing, uh, obviously unimaginably horrible. I don't see them as a harbinger of the end of the world. I see them as a really, really tragic event um, that has definitely that humans played a role in by bringing these species uh, to Hawaii unintentionally, but not necessarily a harbinger of, of you know, global catastrophe. Lots of bad things happen in the world. Some of them are related to the global scale changes that we're making uh, to the climate and other things. And other things are local scale things that happen and are, are horrible, but not necessarily always indicative of uh, you know the global situation, and so to my knowledge, at least, I don't, I don't, I don't think of that catastrophe as part of the bigger global story necessarily. It's how we tell the story, which we're going to come to in the second part of this show. We are talking with Brown University Stephen Porter, the author of Elemental: How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. Shaping of the future, of course, is essential. We're going to take a short break. I want to thank our sponsor of the show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of cultural and politics. We're going to run a short ad for that. Uh, excellent quarterly. And then we'll be back with Stephen Porter, the author of Elemental. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.org. Uh, we are talking with... Um, Stephen Porter, the author of Elemental, How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future. The book is just out. Stephen, 
Uh, I just was, uh, I just came back from Munich from um, interesting conference, DLD Circular 2023. This notion of a circular economy or a circular world, is it a helpful metaphor for you to make sense of, of the stuff you're arguing in Elemental? Yeah, it absolutely is. And particularly, it's uh, important for agriculture. So uh, the more that we can reuse things, uh, generally speaking, the less we will need, of course. And the, the type example of that is, is natural system cycling of nutrients. Uh, so when a leaf falls in a forest, it decomposes. That nu those nutrients are returned uh, to the next generation of organisms or the, next, you know, the plants there that are sucking up, up, up those nutrients. When we moved from an economy that had small-scale agriculture where people lived close to the farm, went to the bathroom near the farm, died near the farm, um, we had a much more circular economy uh, in our food production. Now we have massive uh, agricultural enterprises far away from population centers. We use our chemical ingenuity to add fertilizer, nitrogen we can pull from the air through an industrial process, or we can plant plants that can pull it from the air. Um, phosphorus we have to mine. Both of them we dump in enormous, uh, uh, enormous quantities on our farm fields. The crops take up those farms, we take up those nutrients, we ship those nutrients uh, either to animals to eat, and, but eventually they go through people, they go through us, they go out into our sewer system and out into the ocean, or in the case of nitrogen, back up into the air. Either way, it's a linear system. And that system uh, is inherently unsustainable. Uh, you've already talked about phosphorus with uh, Elizabeth Colbert, um, but phosphorus is a finite element. Uh, there is no substitute for it, unlike oil. And it is, um, it is uh, not infinitely abundant, uh, which nitrogen is in the atmosphere. So it is a key constraint and we are pouring it sort of in this linear fashion through our farm fields and out through us and out to the ocean uh, in a way that will make it very hard to come back. So we need a circular economy, particularly for phosphorus, but also for other things. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the, the extractive industries uh, for cobalt, everything we mine from the earth, right? If we don't use it more, more uh, in a circular way, it means we have to mine more and more, which increases en energy demand, increases uh, environmental destruction more generally. Um, you're actually seeing uh, companies starting to think about mining the waste products from mines because they're so concentrated that it actually is becoming economically beneficial to go back and try and find some of these elements, for example, for batteries in mine tailings. Um, I think the more we can mimic natural systems, the better. Yeah, the mimicking of natural systems is something that a number of people spoke at, about at DLD Circular. And you bring up this word linear and linearity. The, the, those are the bad words. And of course, in uh, because they're anti-nature, nature isn't linear. I, I'm curious, you, you, you talked about the soil. One of the interviews I did there was with my old friend, um, uh, Jan Gisbert Schultz, uh, one of Germany's leading thinkers and activists on regenerative agriculture. Is this one of the ways to address this issue, Stephen? Regenerative agriculture, uh, really focusing on, on the soil. What's your take on this? So 
regenerative agriculture has kind of, in, in my mind, and I probably won't make a lot of friends with it, has become a buzzword that doesn't really have a very clear definition. So if by regenerative agriculture, you mean doing things that slow down erosion, doing or stop erosion and help build soils back up, as I talk about uh, a colleague of mine, Lisa Schulte-Moore is working on uh, in the Midwest. If you're, if you're talking about building soils back up, if you're talking about keeping nutrients in place, if you're talking about limiting nutrient pollution to waterways, then that's wonderful. I think the idea that agricultural practices are going to dramatically change our climate trajectory in the short term is uh, somewhat wishful thinking. Um, and I think the data behind it are not as strong as people would like, certainly not as people who, not as strong as people who are selling carbon credits would like. Um, we have a lot left to learn about how to do this. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying uh, and it doesn't mean it's not important for other reasons, but it, I don't see it as a giant silver bullet or even a really big piece of silver buckshot uh, on the climate problem. And we certainly shouldn't be uh, mining that silver, Stephen. Um... Another person we talked to at uh, DLD Circular was Sandrine Dixon de Clèves, who's the co-president of the Club of Rome, who argues that we need to fundamentally rethink our economic system and what we value, and perhaps even challenge the very idea of the stock market. You're a, a scientist, um, an environmental scientist, rather than an economist or a political scientist. But is there any truth to that? Are we misunderstanding nature? And do we need to perhaps uh, come up with a more natural way of valuing things if we're to maintain our Earth? So uh, you're quite right. I'm not an economist uh, and I'm not an expert in uh, political systems. I certainly have my own political opinions, um, but I, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't waste time on someone's podcast with my with my political opinions. Well, it I'm wouldn't be a waste. I think I'd be curious, actually, to you. I, I guess that's another I'm, issue. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, I, I think that um, I think there are things about nature that we would be wise to mimic, and one of those is the is the recycling of the things that we really need that are very hard to get. I am less enamored of the idea that. Um, you know, everything we do is wrong and we need to change everything. We need energy and we need nutrients and we need water and we need uh, a lot of political things to make sure that those are distributed equitably and with the minimum of harm and the maximum of benefit. And of course, those words equitable and harm and benefit, of course, ask equitable for whom and by whose definition and harming whom and all of those things. But I think as a general society, we can agree even if we can't agree on what the words mean, we can agree that we all want an equitable society with a maximum of benefits and a minimum of harms. The reason I wrote this book about five elements is because I think they are the core of building a sustainable future. If we can get our energy system to be non-destructive, to not uh, essentially become an industrial volcano that pours heat trapping gases into the atmosphere every time we want to turn on a light bulb or drive a car, if we can build our agricultural system in a way that uh, allows us to cycle the nutrients that are scarce and capture the nutrients that we need in a way that is less detrimental. And if we can figure out how to uh, use water wisely uh, and use the energy systems that we have to get the water that we need in a non-destructive way, then I think we'll make enormous progress towards a more sustainable future. Is it like nature? Yeah, sort of, but it doesn't have to be like nature exactly in order to work. 
So for example, um, well, let me just leave it there. I think that we need to live within the physical and chemical con and uh, constraints of the earth system. We're not doing that right now. We're streaming towards a cliff uh, as fast as we can because we have only sort of profit and uh, short-term benefits in mind. I think that's a mistake. But I do think that there's an opportunity to live in a much more sustainable way without giving up everything about the world. I think one of my problems with the idea that we have to reshape everything in society in order to fix uh, our sustainability challenges is simply that there, the biophysical system, the earth system is not going to wait for us to agree. We, we are not good at agreeing and the system is going to continue to be out of equilibrium, worse, more and more out of equilibrium with more and more dire consequences for the least, with, for the people with the fewest resources with, uh, to adapt. And that's happening now and it's happening fast. So some people say, would call my approach incrementalist. I actually don't think it's incrementalist at all. I think we need to go full bore on a revolution in how we think about sustainability. I'm just not entirely sure that that revolution has to be coupled to a global revolution in how we think about everything else. And it's not because I don't want a global revolution in how we think about everything else, but simply that the timescales for achieving that seem to me uh, less concordant with the, the, the biophysical changes that we're making to the earth that are going to make the latter half of this century really horrific if we don't change course quickly. You talk about this moving full bore. You also said earlier, Stephen, that you're not you are a political person, or I don't think it necessarily is appropriate to talk about your politics. But ultimately, this is a political issue. If we are to move, and borrowing your words, full bore towards saving the planet, we have to address the politics. Ultimately, this comes down to governments, uh, international organizations, doesn't it? So, so two questions. Firstly, uh, why and how is this political? And, and, and secondly, most importantly, what needs to happen if we are to do this full bore approach? What must be done? Yeah, well, those are both great questions. So what needs to happen is that we need ultimately a way to get uh, our energy and our food and our water in a way that does not sacrifice the ability of future generations to do the same. Um, I think that's the fundamental biogeochemical, if you will, limit on a, a well-off human society. That is the floor. That is not the ceiling, right? We need equity. We need justice. We need lots of things that are not about the five elements in this book. But we won't have those if we don't manage these elements wisely. Um, how you do that? Well, if I had the answer, right, we would all be uh, much happier. I guess my own take is that it has to come from both the top and the bottom. So what I mean by that is right now, I'll start with individuals and then I'll move up in scale. Right now, I think most people around the world are worried or at least aware of the problem of climate change and of other sustainability challenges. They know the earth isn't the way it used to be. They're, they might not be doing anything about it. For a certain group, actually the most politically active group, everybody spends all their time feeling guilty about everything and they don't know what to worry about because everything they do is, told, is wrong. If you read The Guardian, for example, you know every day you find out something else that is destroying the planet. Um, and it's overwhelming. And when you overwhelm people, uh, it's hard to take action. So I think I am not alone in saying this. 
I think we need to focus on the big things, which are energy production and transportation and the heating of buildings. Those things alone will, if we can get those under control, will help us deal with the climate crisis. We need to reform our agricultural system. That's gonna be really hard. There are a lot of farmers all over the world doing very different things. It's not like you can flip a switch. Um, and we, and if we do all of those things, we're, we're going to be making a lot of progress. So from the bottom up, focus on the big things and vote on those big things. From the top down, um, you know, international governance around uh, these big issues has been very hard to do, but there's an enormous amount of progress at local and regional levels that are starting to bubble out into the international uh, uh space. And I think a lot of that is driven by economics. So as renewable energy gets cheaper, as electric vehicles get cheaper, as um, as that sort of technological progress is made, the fights over them become less political because people can make money from them. That doesn't mean we're going to get all the way there. But I, I, I don't, I'm a firm believer in going as fast and as far as you can with what you have right now. And we're going to have to make it up on the way. We have not been very uh, good and proactive about addressing these challenges, even when we saw them coming. So now we're in the midst of them. We don't have all the solutions and we shouldn't let the fact that we don't have all the solutions stop us from start, you know, going as far as we can and, and working on those solutions as we go. So, you know, up until five years ago, I spent my time walking around tropical rainforests and trying to understand how energy and matter flowed through those systems and how that constrained um, uh, the, 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 the trees and other organisms that live there. And I'm 51 years old. I have whatever, 20, 25 years left in my career. Uh, and I've decided that it's time to go full bore onto, as I said before, into the space of sustainability. It's not enough for me to be teaching my students about this, although that's very important. It's not their problem. It's my problem. And I think if all of us could work a little more on the urgency of that and say, you know, uh, it really is time for me to step up and do the basic things that it's going to take to become uh, to live a more sustainable lifestyle. That will help a lot because not only will individuals be doing, and I certainly wouldn't suggest individuals can do it alone, but they will start to think about the policies, the people they're voting for, ultimately the political organizations that they're supporting. Those things matter. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I can't tell you how we're going to solve these problems. I can only tell you I'm going to die on the hill trying. One of, uh, one of the other people I had on the show, who, and I did a live event with him actually at um, DLD Circular, was uh, my old friend Martin Puchner. He's a classical scholar of comparative literature at Harvard, but he also writes about how we tell the story that you're also trying to tell. How central, um, Stephen, is it for scientists like yourself, guys who have spent their lives, dedicated their lives to understanding what's really happening rather than making everyone feel guilty all the time? How important is it for you to be able to tell your story? Uh, are you familiar with the work of um, Kerry Arsenault? Uh, she's working at Brown and helping scientists like yourself tell the story of the environment. Is this one of the challenges? We hear the different stories, and after a while you hear enough stories, you just tune it all out. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear. I'm sorry to hear that you've tuned it all out. Um, well, I haven't. I, you know, if I tuned it all out, I wouldn't have you on the show. I yeah, haven't. I like hearing the stories, and and I'm as concerned as anyone. Uh, I don't understand it, obviously, in the way you understand it. But 
it seems as if the, the, the narrative is, is so essential in terms of reaching people and telling them a story that makes sense. I think it's actually, so you're absolutely right. I mean, that's why I'm here. This book is not meant for scientists. This book is meant for anybody who is interested in how we might build a more sustainable future and what we can learn from Earth's past that will inform a more sustainable future. Um, I wrote this book, actually, this book was conceived in a program that I attended for environmental scientists who are interested in communicating with a broader audience and becoming leaders, not just in academia, not just of good lab groups, but of, of movements and of, of people. And so uh, that was in 2013 that I did that. Uh, I've always wanted to be part of the bridge between the scientific community uh, and the sort of specialized in the weeds knowledge that we, we specialize in and the broader conversation uh, about society. And so uh, I, I think storytelling is absolutely critical. That's, that's one thing. I think the other thing that's ab absolutely critical, and I'm going to borrow from one of my personal heroes, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a, a remarkable climate scientist. Yeah, she's America. been on the show before as well. Yeah. So I'm going to borrow from her and say, we need you, anybody, to talk in their community. It's not enough for scientists to go out in the world and tell everybody what's going on. We need people to talk in their faith groups. We need people to talk to the people that work. We need people to talk to their families. We need people to talk to their friends. We need people talking about this issue across all these groups. And I'm not necessarily the right messenger for, for all those groups. I'm happy to talk to anybody always. Um, my wife would say maybe a little too much, but uh, I am one of many. We need all of the diversity of thinkers uh, all of the diversity of advocates out there talking to the people who they connect with. And we all connect with different communities. And so um, we will never fix this problem without good storytelling. If I show you a graph, uh, you, there's a certain kind of person who's convinced by a graph, but most everybody is not. Most everybody is convinced by a story. And so I, you're absolutely right. And uh, I wrote this book because I wanted to tell this story. I think it's a, a different way of looking at the problem than perhaps has been written about before. Um, and it's one story among many, but I hope it's compelling to, to some people who read it. 